Welcome to the Achieve Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Feldman, and each month we explore the research, strategies, successes, and even the failures behind some of today's best fundraising and marketing for causes. As we explore each one of these, we'd like to invite different types of guests that will explore their own unique takes on what really works today and will leave us a little intrigued on what they're working on for the future. This podcast is supported in partnership with the Festival of Children Foundation. I'll be joined today by Andrea Pachter. Andrea is the Associate Director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. In that role, she's in charge of program and curricular development, along with marketing and social media and operations. In addition to that, she organizes conferences and events for Women's Philanthropy Institute, interacting with both faculty as well as speakers and donors and others to inspire women in philanthropy overall. She's also the author of several chapters and books. She's co-authored in different aspects related Related to leadership in nonprofit organizations and fundraising. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Achieve Podcast. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Derek. All right. So I've known you for a while. In fact, I think that we were office mates at one point in history, right? Uh, we were indeed. It was a different time in your life, and <laughs> I'm still doing. I'm still doing the same work. <laughs> well, let's talk about that work. Uh, so I, of course, have read your bio and everything, but I always love hearing from the person who represents the bio. Tell me about you. Tell me, how did you get to working at the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, which is a mouthful, huh? It is, it is a mouthful. And once you finish saying that, you have no more space on Twitter. <laughs> but in, in, in many ways, I really came to this work through the back door. I was a student here, just like you, and received my MA in Philanthropic Studies in 2003. And after that, like many of our grads, I took a fundraising position. And after about 18 months, I was invited to come back to what was then the Center on Philanthropy and organize the first symposium about women's philanthropy that was under the auspices of the Center on Philanthropy. And the reason I was identified for this opportunity was really based on the resume that I brought to the school of about 25 years, I think, of volunteering in primarily women-led and women-focused faith-based organizations. So there seemed to be some connection between the volunteering side of the giving and volunteering that the Women's Philanthropy Institute looks at and, and my background. And I've been here ever since. It's hard to believe. And let me tell you, we've seen so much change. I, I suspect. So let's let's talk about, give me a sense, if you have to dummy it down for all of us, what does the Women's Philanthropy Institute do? Well, I don't think we have to dummy it down because it's pretty straightforward. Our focus is twofold. We focus on research and we focus on education about gender and philanthropy. And that's, then that's it's a full stop. But we are really, we are the only institute of this kind in the world where the focus is solely on research about gender and philanthropy. So it's a pretty amazing place to be from that perspective. So let's talk to, to about the early days that you got there um, and, and to now. I, I mean, tell me the first study that you worked on that in looking back, is it sort of like, wow, that was an interesting study. So give me, give me an idea of the first kind of projects to the kind of projects you're dealing with now. Let me go back just a little bit before that because it's important, I think, for people to understand the history of this organization. It was a freestanding 501c3 before 
it came to the Center on Philanthropy. And then when it became part of the center, and then when Deb Mesh came in as the director in 2008, the focus really shifted from being more of a donor-centered, donor education kind of an organization to this focus on research. And of course, that was really appropriate for being at the Center on Philanthropy since the research department here um, is so active and so involved in generating empirical data for the field. That then brings us forward to say 2010 when we released the first in our new, in our signature series, the Women Give series. So what's really interesting about that is that the, the themes that undergirded that really have become the foundation for what we generally know about gender and philanthropy these days. I don't think we knew in 2010 how much history we really were making. It was, I mean, when you go back and you think about what we've been able to accomplish over the past seven some years, it, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty remarkable. It is. It's crazy. I mean, we're, uh, we're in the same situation with next year being 10 years of the Millennial Impact Project. And we're saying to ourselves, remember that first study? Can you believe it? And now looking back. So kudos to you as well for, for getting to this journey. Well, let's, let's sort of set some baseline a little bit here. What do we know about women and giving right now? Tell, give me, at least for the people listening here, help me understand the baseline of why this is so important. Well, this is important because women are half the population. And this is important because the story of philanthropy as we have known it for time is pretty much a male-centered story. So when we go speak to audiences and we say, when you, when you hear the word philanthropist, who do you think of? They always respond back, say, people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett without understanding that women have been part of philanthropy ever since this country was founded and before. And so the value of the research really is that it helps provide a perspective for people to understand how much influence and power women have today in philanthropy. It's not that they didn't have power before, but because women have more access to education income and wealth, which are key predictors of philanthropic giving, then they are really positioned to influence how philanthropy happens uh, as we move forward in this century. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, Andrea, I, I'm a, I have two little lovely ladies, a six and nine-year-old Paige and Blair, and you know, I hope that they're growing up in a world that, that they see themselves in those and that we're having a different narrative than just the male narrative, and, and you're working on that. Yeah, and what, we, what, we're, what the research really does, I mean, I think everybody understands that research for research's sake isn't really very helpful. We hope that practitioners will be able to use this research to change their fundraising strategies we know from anecdotal experience, from the research that you guys have been doing at Achieve, from other research, that fundraising is no longer a one-size-fits-all model and that our donor base is far more diverse and we have to respond accordingly because the messages that work for men don't necessarily work for women as well. And one of our dear friends, Lisa Witter, wrote a book in 2008 called the she spot where she says that women are the niche audience and when you reach women you reach men too very 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 true so so i had a chance to look at some of the recent data and i know that you're working with the gates foundation and a couple others to see how we can inspire more giving so what how do we let, let's just talk about women in general how do we get more women to be involved in philanthropy what do you know one of the things 
that we want to be able to research more, but we have some intuitive sense of understanding is that women like to work in community and the concept of a network of people coming together really resonates with women. So we just released a study in November uh, in partnership with the Collective Giving Research Group about giving circles, and that's a really good example of how women are driving this very community-based philanthropy. The majority of giving circles today, and this particular study identified about 1,600 of them, and before anybody poo-poos giving circles, people should understand (laughs) that over the 30-year history that we can track of giving circles, giving circles collectively have allocated almost $1.3 billion into the community. And yes, you heard that right, Derek, billion dollars. It's not small change. It's a lot of change. And it's a lot of change primarily at the local level. And women have been driving that movement for, say, the past 20-some years. What, what about some of these things like giving days or all these other acts of just what I would say um, just are impulsive acts of giving and philanthropy? What do you know about women in those scenarios and environments? Well, I'm so glad that you asked, Derek, because you might know that in early December, we released another study specific to giving participation on Giving Tuesday. Now, our data was from 2016, so the 55% increase in giving that occurred between 2016 and 2017, I can't speak about what happened just a little bit ago, but what we we did find from the 2016 data is that women are driving giving on Giving Tuesday as well. Now, the the way this shapes out is that giving goes up for both men and women and that the average gift is about the same. But because more women are engaged on a Giving Tuesday, then the dollars that they contribute are higher. So the implications of that for the field are pretty profound. And, and you talk a lot about this kind of, um, these kind of implications in, in the work of Achieve as well, is that fundraisers who want to take advantage of everyone in the donor pool have to develop messages that are particular to both men and to women. Let's keep on this track a little bit, which is around fundraisers. What, how do you, what do you suggest to fundraisers of any gender and how they should engage women in philanthropy? I mean, because these are the individuals that are out there marketing to, communicating with, stewarding as well. What's your advice to them? First of all, fundraisers are very important to help change the social norms around who is a philanthropist. So we rely on fundraisers to understand the research, to internalize it, and then to adapt their fundraising strategies to reflect the messages that the research give. The research is really powerful about the role of women in philanthropy. So what does that mean then for people on the ground? The first is the general sense is that women like to touch and see and feel and hear and fully sense the nonprofit. So they like to be involved often before they give, and they like to hear stories of impact. So this is not a story that says we fed, it's not necessarily a story that says we fed a thousand kids today in our backpack lunch program. It might be the story of one of those children and the difference that that food made to her in her life. So that message of empathy really resonates with women 
much more than it does with men. Sometimes we know too that, and this is throughout history, women may want to meet the recipients of their contributions. And that's why women very often will support scholarships. Now, if the, if the nonprofit um, you know, who's listening to this doesn't have scholarships, don't fret. Just think about the fact that women want to be engaged with the people that you serve in some way. And if they can't do that because of client confidentiality, then your ability to tell that story is really critical to bring the woman into the work. And it just, this seems to be a higher priority for women than it does for men. So I'm thinking about direct mail campaigns. Sure, sure. And this is, everybody does direct mail campaigns. So a direct mail campaign, which can tell a really powerful story and also include some key data points, not a lot necessarily, but if they can lean heavily on the story of impact of the work that they do, that's going to resonate with women. But because the data points are there, the nonprofit is likely going to attract men as well. So it's a win-win for everybody. So what do you make of this year, everything that's going on? We've got interesting moments that are happening in our history that have been long overdue that I would I would make that claim. And, and heavy in this view scene, I shared with you our recent gender brief that we sent out around millennial women and getting involved and, and active. Um, what is sort of your... Uh, your sort of take on on activism where it is today and how that's also in the philanthropic spirit of what you're looking at. There's no question, but that we are in a period of incredible change. And it's, it's because I am not an academic and I am not a researcher. I'm not always sure whether the research can capture what's happening on the ground in a way that makes sense because things are changing so fast. So the first thing that I thought about um, after I read the report, who is more involved in causes today, women or men, was did this report in any way connect to the women's marches that occurred shortly after the 2016 presidential election? Because it was clear, and we have plenty of visual evidence of that, that women of all ages, all ethnicities, all colors were deeply involved in getting themselves seen and heard in response to this particular political moment. And I, I can't, I can't quite understand. I mean, I don't know the extent to which that has translated that into activism, but some of the findings didn't particularly surprise me that women are going to be perhaps a little more passive. And that might, I mean, that might've been true in early 2017, but I think that with the Me Too mo movement and the changes related to people coming out about the sexual harassment, I truly do believe that women of all ages are no longer going to sit idly by and they're going to use every resource that they have, their pocketbook, their assets, their voice, their advocacy, everything that they have to create a more caring, a more civil, and a more interactive um, participatory culture. I'm here, here. I agree. We, you know, we talk, we talk consistently around the supporter mentality that millennials have with causes and issues, in which that they view themselves as supporting an issue. They do that through acts of giving, through acts of time, through acts of voice, and through acts of their network. And uh, um, I see that also happening, as as you know too, of using all of those assets. 
but but here's a question that goes back. Are we set up, is the nonprofit sector set up in the organizations you interact with to work with women using all of their assets like that for good? You know, the asset of time, their skill, their talent, their network. Um, are we really just focused on money at times? What, what's your viewpoint? Um, I'm going to uh, make a qualifying statement here that this is more my personal viewpoint than the viewpoint of my employer, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, because I, I don't like know that. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't know that the school would would make a comment about this. But having worked in this space for a long time, we've already talked about the fact that this is a pivotal moment in our history for lots of reasons, I mean, not just a political kind of a situation. Um, but nonprofits are probably not yet fully situated to engage particularly younger people in the way that younger people want to be engaged. And this is a limitation in two particular areas. One is that many nonprofits, particularly the smaller ones, are resource-challenged. Right. And in Agreed. order in order to engage people, I mean, volunteering today is not necessarily what volunteering was 25 years ago. It's much more specific. It could be much more time limited. And the, the, some of the uh, millennials or, or younger people aren't necessarily going to come to the nonprofit the way we used to, but rather want to create something that supports the nonprofit outside of that organization sphere. So to have a pop-up giving circle where they then choose what cause to support sort of thing. And so it becomes much harder for the nonprofit to engage the donors when the activity is happening outside of that organization. And that takes a lot of time and energy on the part of the nonprofit and they're strapped with resources. Everybody is doing more with less. We're still in that kind of an environment. But the other one is probably even more important, and that's around this issue of advocacy. Too many nonprofits are afraid of straying over the line and not being willing to become advocates in the public policy realm for what makes a difference to them. And we have heard some great stories led by women, for example. There's a woman in Seattle, Sonia Campion, with the Campion Foundation, she started the 501, the, the public foundation, and decided after a very short time that they weren't having the impact they wanted on the causes that they supported. So they then set up a corollary 501c4, you know, a non-tax exempt organization, so that they could do the advocacy. They do the advocacy around the same causes they support, this, this one of which is homelessness yep. in Washington. So here's an example of what I think we're going to see more of by, on the donor side in the future. And nonprofits have to figure out how to position themselves so that they're not afraid to be advocates. One of the things that Sonia said, and I think this is so critical, is that every member of the board of a nonprofit ought to know who their legislators are and ought to be able to go and stand before them or write them letters and talk about their mission and find ways to partner. Public-private partnerships are one of the, you know, they're a bedrock of what we should all be doing. None of us can solve these problems alone. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we look at this, you know, I, I, the, the thing that inspires me the most around uh, younger generations that we've been able to study for so long is the idea that I can support social issues. I can support anything with so many different routes, right? And right. I love that. Right. And, and the thing is, is that that's actually not a new concept, Per se, it's just a new way of saying I have so many other things of value to you, 
and you know help use those take those to your advantage as well so all right so I before we depart here uh, together and I, I have to ask around what is your hope what is your sort of hope when it comes to how we view philanthropy and gender and and, and I completely support the notion that we need to to change the cultural and social norm around this discussion but is there anything else that you hope happens and if you said, boy, we, we really can hang our hat on that, what would that be? There are three things, Derek. The first is that there's no question in my mind that women's engagement in philanthropy will continue to grow. And so everybody, nonprofit organizations, nonprofit leaders, financial advisors, the world at large needs to understand that we're not going away. We've never been away. We've just not necessarily always been at the same table and that Women's engagement looks different from mainstream philanthropy, and that's neither good nor bad. It's just different. It's the way it is. So we expect, for example, that giving circles will increase in number. And as hard as it is for nonprofits to understand how to leverage the power of the donor-advised funds, understanding how to work with and leverage the power of giving circles in local communities is a really important piece of the puzzle as well. So another piece that I'm particularly excited about is this idea that women will continue to explore and experiment with newer forms of philanthropy. This goes back to the notion of fully leveraging resources and impact investing is going to be fun to follow because I think it's something that women are very interested in, have aspirations for, and are still trying to figure out how to make it work for them. And finally, perhaps the one that's going to have the most impact is the power of women to influence giving within their families. And, and to me, the, the prototype for this is, well, there are probably two, Melinda Gates and Priscilla Chan. So two very high net worth donors married to very powerful men. But it's clear from the stories that we read that they are influencing how that philanthropy is occurring. And that then gives us the opportunity to leverage even more dollars collectively for the greater good. So I think we're on an upward trajectory, and I'm very excited, and I think the next 10 or 15 years, uh, things are going to unfold even faster than they have in the previous seven or eight. Here, here. I agree. Well, hey, Andrew, it's been fun, and always fun to reconnect. Uh, and uh, we won't, uh, I know we don't share a current office space together, but we're not the, too far from each other. No, no, and I'd love to see some pictures of those girls. That would be, <laughs> that would be great. All right. Well, Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Very good. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Achieve Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Andrea Pachter with the Women's Philanthropy Institute for sharing your knowledge. We look forward to having you next time on the Achieve Podcast.